Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast about the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave, a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. During the fall 2020 semester, four teams of students have researched, recorded, and produced stories about how people have faced the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. In 1974, a federal judge ruled that Boston public schools were inherently racist. He ordered a busing program in an effort to desegregate the public education system. Some saw this as the end of a world. This episode explores the reaction to desegregation and its lasting effects. Boston, Massachusetts, a beacon of American history, a city that's no stranger to conflict. The history books paint Boston with scenes of patriotism and progress. Bostonians throwing 90,000 pounds of tea into Boston Harbor, and later as a supposed safe haven for those escaping slavery. To end a world of oppression, a world of taxation without representation, in search of something better. The city of Boston, once unified under the common desire for independence and freedom, found itself at another set of crossroads 200 years later a crossroads already familiar to those in Montgomery and Selma. Boston's role in achieving American independence may be one of its most well-known battles, but it certainly is not the most telling. Today's story isn't quite as pretty, but it's those stories, the ones we prefer to forget, that are usually the most revealing. This story is one where, on the surface, people were fighting for their children's right to a proper education, but in reality, It was a fight against the forces of racism and classism that kept equality at bay. This battle, the Boston busing crisis, and the civil rights movement in the North. It was on September 15, 1975, that these sounds first rang clear through the streets of Boston. The sound of rocks shattering school bus windows, mothers screaming at children as they are escorted to their classrooms by police officers. This was the first day of school after the landmark ruling by U.S. District Judge from Massachusetts, W. Arthur Garrity, the ruling that turned the city of Boston upside down. I'm Lydia Shields, along with my co-host, Maxwell Burt. Welcome to Final Examination. First, a little background on the events leading up to Garrity's monumental decision. 1965, nine years before the word busing became synonymous with the city of Boston, and 11 years after the Supreme Court struck down separate but equal institutions in Brown v. Board of Education. The year the Massachusetts State Legislature passed the Racial Imbalance Act, an act requiring schools that had a body of over 50% of students of one race to desegregate immediately, despite having almost no financial or public support from white Bostonians about the issue. At this point in time, It was impossible to deny the fact that students attending predominantly black schools in Boston were receiving less funding and less attention than predominantly white schools. Roxbury, a neighborhood coined as the heart of black culture in Boston, had schools that were 90% black, while just a few miles away in Irish-American-dominated South Boston, nearly 100% of the students were white. According to WBUR, some white schools lacked libraries and cafeterias, while some black schools lacked classrooms, books, and even teachers. In the mid-1960s, just one Boston school teacher in 200 was black. 
While black students were certainly affected by this discrimination more heavily, the situation was ideal for no one. Something had to change. And so, the racial imbalance law was implemented in an attempt to provide more equal access to educational resources regardless of race. But doing so would disrupt the already delicate social fabric of the city, and those in power were not going to let that happen. Unsurprisingly, the Boston School Committee simply denied the legislation, stating that it was just the way it was, and that the appearance of segregation was because it's where people chose to live. The Boston School Committee, consisting of only white members, had no incentive to change the status quo. In fact, they liked the status quo, and disrupting it would only anger their political supporters. The Boston school system was fine the way that it was, so anyone trying to change that was seen as a threat by white Bostonians. Louise Day Hicks, chairwoman of the Boston School Committee and a role model for many white parents in Boston at the time, held fast to the position that desegregation was unnecessary, in fact, potentially dangerous, without providing any real evidence to support her case. There was no reason other than the power of systemic racism for her sentiment. Yet it resonated with white Bostonians at the time. In this excerpt of The Tom Larson Show, first aired in 1973, just two years before the mandated busing, Hicks defends her position on segregation. Getting straight to the point, Larson asks why Hicks believes she had been plagued throughout her career with a racist tag. Her argument, although flawed, was unintentionally revealing. Well, I think because I was the champion of neighborhood schools, although I never supported inferior education, I don't mind where anyone lives. It's the fact that if you do live in a neighborhood, that you should attend the neighborhood school. I would say the overwhelming majority of people, not only in Massachusetts, but in the whole country, have approved of neighborhood schools. So if the tag was rightfully placed upon me, then it belongs to all of the people. While her claim is dangerously broad, it does hold merit. Hicks had political power within the Boston school system because she represented the racist ideology that resonated with so many people at the time. Boston was fine the way that it was. In fact, whether she or the white residents of Boston would admit it, they liked Boston the way that it was. So it's no surprise that the growing demands for desegregation and busing created a sense of fear for white Bostonians. Fear of revolution, a revolution they didn't want. Yet, to the disappointment of Hicks and her supporters, the revolution did come, and certainly not without battle and bloodshed. There were efforts from the community to start integrating schools regardless of what Hicks was saying. Operation Exodus was an effort led by two black women, Ellen Jackson and Elizabeth Johnson, along with a cohort of black parents that were concerned about their children's education in all-black schools. This cohort was made up of members of different parent groups in Roxbury that came together to raise funds for buses and cars to bring their children to predominantly white schools that had resources open and seats to spare. Exodus was busing over 400 students by its second year, but the program was by no means permanent. The operation was community-led and therefore privately funded, so the lack of sufficient funds made it difficult to keep the operation going. It lasted from 1965 to 1969 and only stopped because it ran out of funds, peaking at transporting 976 students to school. Something more permanent needed to be put in place. So, in 1974, a seemingly concrete solution came about when the court case Morgan v. Hennigan was decided. 
Judge Garrity ruled that the Boston public school system of separate but equal institutions was inherently racist, because in fact these schools were far from equal. He ordered the desegregation of the schools via busing, which consisted of bringing students from the predominantly black and Latino neighborhood of Roxbury to the predominantly white and Irish neighborhood of South Boston, and vice versa. White Bostonians perceived this as an end of the world of white supremacy. But of course, we know white supremacy continues to dominate parts of the country today. Even with the facade of good intention, busing didn't do much to advance true educational equality. Though it may have seemed that the law had finally trumped white supremacy and systemic racism, irony lied within the busing system itself. In trying to further integrate the student body of Boston, busing served to provide another avenue through which black and minority students would be further disadvantaged and city culture further disrupted. Neighborhood schools are a large piece of Boston culture, and the new busing system entirely ignored that. Our teammate, Cassie McGrath, spoke to Tatish Natetta, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, about the effects of busing on neighborhoods. We know that property taxes fund schools, and in a city as segregated as Boston, how does one's housing or personal wealth or how does race play into how well schools are funded? Generally, how this works is education is funded through tax base of the town or the city. And so much of that tax base comes from taxes from homes. And the idea is you buy into, as a consumer, uh, into various neighborhoods because they have good schools. And so when you create a busing system, you, you in essence explode that entire system. So there is an argument against this notion of busing that is relatively rational, but um, I do think that negative racial attitudes, of course, played an important role in understanding opposition to busing. Roxbury and South Boston are not close to one another. It can take about 20 minutes to drive from one neighborhood to the other. And in order to mathematically equalize the city schools, administrators ripped students out of their native neighborhoods and away from peers they had grown up with. It appeared the students were thought of as nothing more than statistics, their displacement done superficially to put forth a performative effort to end white supremacy without enacting any real resounding change. And nearly 50 years later, this performative effort is still at work in Boston. METCO, which was founded in 1966 by black parents as a voluntary busing program similar to Exodus, is now the primary organization that buses students in the city. In its lifespan, it has bused thousands of children to schools that have given them more educational opportunities, but it isn't enough. The real way towards equality in the city of Boston is desegregation of communities instead of just the school populations. METCO CEO Millie Arbaje Thomas said the following on the matter. I want the city of Boston to understand that desegregation is necessary. The isolation in the suburbs when it comes to any race is a problem, and METCO is providing a solution to that problem in a very small way. Boston City Council Education Vice Chair Anissa Asabi-George weighed in on the issue as well, saying a handful of kids in a suburban school is not going to diversify that school experience. When we create more diversified communities, that creates more diversified schools. This podcast is supported by Alita's Angels, a 501c3 nonprofit that provides clothing to asylum-seeking children and their families. To learn more about Alita's Angels and support their mission, please visit alitasangels.com. That's A-L-I-T-A-S angels.com. 
1975, white Bostonians were raging about the topic of desegregation. On one occasion after Garrity's decision, they held a rally outside of the government center where they directed anger towards Senator Ted Kennedy, who backed the ruling. An estimated 4,000 people booed Kennedy off the stage. White parents from South Boston, or Southie as it's commonly known, harassed the buses as they came in from Roxbury. The black students still brave enough to make the journey were guarded by police upon entry to South Boston High School. It was an incredibly violent time for the city. When we go up there, we're going to be stoned. It's not fair to me because why is the other way around when they come up here? When they come up here, we won't mess with them, so why when we come up there, they mess with us? What do you think about the people of South Boston, Joanne? If you were the message you'd like to tell them, what would it be? And I don't think it's fair. It's not fair to me. Bob Schwartz, the mayor's advisor on education at the time, has been quoted saying that there wasn't a lot of education to be had during that period of time. It was basically just trying to keep kids from being killed. Even the National Guard had to be sent in. A black student stabbed a white student in South Boston, resulting in white parents surrounding the school and trapping black teenagers inside. A white mob beat a black cab driver. Bricks were thrown through school bus windows. By this point, white parents who were unhappy with busing seemed to have no problem using violence as a means to an end, teaching their children this method as well. Alexandrina Young a parent of a black student who was subjected to busing under the law, explained how she viewed this violence. All we want for our kids is to love and to get a decent education and to live decently as human beings. But we're not even as distinguished as human beings as far as East Boston goes or South Boston. We're in and I would be damned if I had any child of mine exposed to anything like that. I wouldn't want my child to sit beside it because, see, I'm not going to teach it to hate. And that's what's happening. That's the lesson that those kids have been getting out there in South Boston. Stand beside mommy, sweetie, and throw a rock at them. Black students, although their opinion on the matter was rarely asked, felt the impact of Boston's racial violence harshly, forcing them to choose between their safety and an adequate education. Up the hill, you could hear people saying, go home. Um, there were signs, uh, they had made up signs saying, black people stay out, we don't want any in our school, and there were people on the corners holding bananas like we were apes. We sat down with Michael Contempasis, the former headmaster of Boston Latin School, to learn more about why busing was such a failure. The way busing was implemented, the answer is yes, it was a failure. And I remind you that the plaintiffs in this case, who were the parents of black students, did not want busing. They weren't asking for busing, they were asking for quality schools and it's often you know linked incorrectly that the remedy was a result of what the plaintiffs were trying to uh, accomplish that's far from the truth what they were trying to do was get quality education for students in a district that obviously had not done what it was obliged to do legally and that is to provide every student with the wherewithal access to a quality education. And over time, as the judge found, the district deliberately implemented policy decisions that enhanced the separation 
rather than tr- trying to incorporate procedures and protocols that would have led to a much more, I think, careful implementation of the remedy. And a lot of that was done deliberately by the school committee and by the elected officials in the district. They could have made a difference, in other words, and they didn't, which required the judge to intervene. By the way, that political will is still lacking, in my opinion, within the district. And so you are still experiencing in Boston a commitment to an assignment plan that relies heavily on choice and busing of students. And when you have a district that has as many schools which are considered to be underperforming, you're really not solving the problem. And so when I suggest to you that, in hindsight, implementing a busing program, if you were going to do that, would have been probably more beneficial if it had started on a smaller scale. The attempt to stop desegregation not only negatively impacted Boston students and their education, but also the city of Boston in general. The racial violence and lack of adequate education made parents lose trust in the Boston school system, leading those who had the resources to leave to do so. According to WBUR, the year busing began, there were 86,000 students enrolled in Boston public schools, more than half of them white. Today, there are 54,000 students, and less than 14% are white. Donna Neely, a former Boston resident who now lives in Foxborough, remembers the racial tension in Boston during that time well. She attended the Girls' Latin Academy, now Boston Latin Academy, and graduated in 1976, just two years after Garrity's landmark ruling. What I observed was a lot of the families just packed up and moved to the suburbs. Uh, But once we had children, we knew we did not want them to go to Boston public schools. Um, So we packed ourselves up and moved off to the suburbs, too. The trend of white families leaving for the suburbs is known as white flight. A 2016 article from The Atlantic explains the effect of this phenomenon. Decades of white flight have chipped away at the gains made by desegregation efforts. Today, Boston schools are even more segregated than they were before busing began. 86% of its students are non-white, and as of the 2014-15 school year, 78% are low income. In Boston and across the country, this trend towards resegregation is compounded by waning teacher diversity. Classrooms filled entirely with black and Latino children often have a white teacher at the blackboard. These realities are underscored by structural fault lines outside of the classroom. Incidents of police brutality have prompted communities of color to question the narrative of civil rights progress. Downward mobility threatens even those black families that have gained some financial stability, and racial discord is at one of the highest levels it's been at in decades. We want to take a moment to thank our supporters. Graham Brinson, Craig Kafura, Derek Perkins, Tom Hurtweck, John Gilbert, Lena Srivastava, Jennifer Bonder, Nicholas Croce, Haley Newton, Emma Barasso, Nusha Udin, Jean Yoon, Andrew Lieber, Judd Greenstein, Julie Lukton, Yu Ming Lu. Busing was meant to integrate schools, and by extension, the city. 
Students of different races and from different neighborhoods would come together under one roof and learn together, which sounds great in theory, but was poorly executed. In fact, South Boston only became more closed off and xenophobic, and the notorious gangster Whitey Bulger had a huge hand in that. It has been said that busing was the greatest thing that ever happened to Whitey Bulger because he recognized the opportunity and capitalized. Needing a South Boston that was paranoid and closed off to the rest of the city, he promised those against busing protection from the perceived enemy of the politicians pushing the agenda. The rapidly increasing dropout rate in South Boston left many students to turn to the streets, where Bulger was king. Bussing gave him a population of poor and unemployed teenage dropouts, creating a huge market for the drugs he ran into the city and neighborhoods. In the years leading up to the Morgan v. Hennigan ruling in 1974, South Boston was perceived to be a bastion of white supremacy and privilege. Some of the city's most powerful politicians were from there. And yet, South Boston High School had the highest number of students on welfare of any school in the city. Though the neighborhood produced some of the wealthiest and most powerful Bostonians, the school district of the neighborhood mostly served the population of Southie's three larger housing projects. Basically, there were two South Bostons, the classic haves and have-nots. Those with money sent their kids to private or parochial schools, while those with less wealth went to South Boston High. Michael Patrick McDonald, a white student from South Boston High, remembers when Southie exploded in retaliation to the busing plan. Many felt that it would not benefit them, and that they, as individuals, were being overlooked. The national news focused on scenes of racist violence, and rightfully so, as it was horrendous, but neglected to examine the class manipulation that was hurting Roxbury and South Boston families. Busing inspired a xenophobic, us-against-them rhetoric that only further embedded deep-seated racism within the neighborhood. Whitey preyed on the fear and xenophobia felt by the South Boston population. McDonald cites a heavy police presence with snipers on rooftops and helicopters hovering overhead as being compared to the British occupation of Northern Ireland, a deeply shared hatred among the Irish Americans of Southie. Those no longer in school, in addition to creating a rich market for Bulger, presented him with a large workforce. Bulger reigned supreme over the neighborhood, bringing Southie into the dumps with his business. It began to feel more closed off from the rest of the city, with the population called racist white trash by outsiders. People of South Boston believed they were being protected by politicians claiming to represent their interests of keeping people of color out of their neighborhood. Meanwhile, whitey and homegrown criminals continued to drag Southie down. In the four decades since busing was implemented, Southie continuously held one of the highest death rates from drug overdose and suicide, largely facilitated by Whitey and his gang. Today, residents of Boston and Massachusetts as a whole maintain a sense of pride in the notion that the area is an enlightened and progressive one, where segregation and racism do not exist. Yet, as we've seen, this clearly is not true. Many residents believe such issues only occur in the South and distance themselves from personal responsibility to racial justice. But Boston was the backdrop to some of the most violent racial protests in the 1970s. Massachusetts, and more specifically Boston, are believed to be the exception to the civil rights movement and civil rights issues by many Massachusetts residents. On this topic, Professor Natetta explains. One of the arguments set forth by people from Massachusetts is that we're better than everyone else. The origins of the revolution 
that created the country were here in Massachusetts, right? It's in Boston Harbor. So the notion that we are exceptional and distinct is woven through a lot of our identity as citizens of this state and as citizens of the city of Boston, right? Whether that's earned by contemporary citizens of this commonwealth is an empirical question. African-Americans have been part and parcel of this, the history of the city since the city existed, right? So that's one part of it. So, you know, I always say <clears throat> Boston Celtics, first professional organization to start five Black players in a basketball game. First professional organization to have a Black head coach, right? In sports, not come up to stop with the like, oh my goodness, in sports, not just in the NBA. Um, and so there's this history of racial egalitarianism that's woven through some of our sports teams. So that sort of feeds into the exceptionalism, right? The Boston Bruins got some issues as well. I don't know if people thought it was the end of the world um, with busing. I think people, they use the power of protest to communicate their opposition to a policy which fundamentally was about attempting to create racial egalitarianism. But the interesting thing about the policy and the interesting thing about racial egalitarianism is in order to become a more equal society, someone has to bear the cost. When it came to the North, they were unwilling to bear the cost. They were unwilling to see their complicity and their participation in the white supremacist project. And they were pushing back on that aspect. The implementation of a busing program in Boston clearly did not bring an end to racism in Boston, nor did it bring educational equality to its students. Both implicit and explicit racism continue to plague not just the city of Boston, but the United States as a whole. By supporting the institutions holding up white supremacy, we accept the racist tag Luis de Hicks placed on us all back in 1973. People of color in Boston remain inherently disadvantaged, and resounding change still needs to be enacted. Furthermore, few students are taught the history of Boston busing. Even students living in Massachusetts don't hear much about it. This is unacceptable, considering how important it is that the true history of Boston is taught and reflected on in order to understand how we can best restore justice in the city. Was busing a step in the right direction? Maybe. But even now, the battle for equality is far from over. Since busing ended, numerous policies and protests have moved racial equality in the right direction. Professor Natetta told Final Examination that there are two factors which encourage racial equality in Boston. First, he said that generational replacement, or the idea that the new generations being born will adopt more progressive ideas, impact the city. Second, Natetta mentioned how previously, Boston was a city where people would come to be educated and then leave. During the 1970s, it was not the beautiful city we know now. In recent years, as Boston has become more attractive to higher-income professionals, these students have stayed. This increasing diversity has changed the overall identity of the city, adding to the progressive ideology as well. But we still have a long way to go. It is now 2020, about 50 years since the start of busing. In May of this year, George Floyd was murdered at the hands of the police, and Black Lives Matter protests erupted around the world, including in Boston. The Black Lives Matter movement has shown us that this racial injustice can no longer continue, 
inspiring conversations and change across the country. This movement is showing how much we need to change as a country, while also exhibiting the power and strength of people who continue to fight against systemic racism. Creating a racially egalitarian society is an unending fight, but lucky for us, we can learn from the activists, teachers, parents, politicians, and black students who have and continue to fight these battles. That's it for this episode of Final Examination. I'm Lydia Shields, along with Maxwell Burt. See you next time. This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Lydia Shields and Maxwell Burt. It was edited by Sarah Blasnalis. Cassandra McGrath worked as the audio engineer and editor. Julia Limmer, Maxwell Burt, and Sarah Blasnalis researched the material used in this episode. It was produced by Matthew O'Terry. This podcast was created by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 4.0 international license.